Hi, Chris from Lost Boys here again in St Peter's Cemetery in Dalbeth for another Celtic Grave Society event, this time marking the grave of Celtic's very first chairman, John Hubert McLaughlin. Uh, he was our chairman from 1897 until the day he died in 1909. So over a hundred years later we're here to mark his grave. Um, of a very important man in Celtic's history, not only was he a our first chairman, but he was also a huge exponent of professionalism in Scottish football in the early days, back in the days when it was very much the the thing to be amateur, or shamateur, as uh, we're about to hear today. Um, our big rivals, Queen's Park at the time, were uh, very big exponents of staying amateur, where we were kind of at the forefront of wanting to pay the players properly, and John McLaughlin was very much the, the key man in that, and as we all know, well, very much professional now in Queen's Park, a very much a third division team. So mate, know who did the right thing there. Um, he was also a, a big exponent of them pushing us into being the, the limited liability company we became in 1897, which obviously put him in prime position to be the first chairman. But enough for me, because we're here to listen to other people that know what they're talking about. I'm sure that's a big good event. I've already seen the, the gravestone and it's... Uh, a bit more prominent than uh, usual because of the, the way the money was raised for this one. I think it was uh, the family were the ones involved in raising it and I think they did it pretty quick actually so well done to them and hopefully the, the event today will be fitting for the the gravestone they've put together. So let's see how this goes. Before we begin I just have to say I've just watched Several members of what I can only imagine is the, the McLaughlin family wandering and greet each other when they haven't seen each other in years. And that is just brilliant. <laughs> it's one of the, the best things about this is the, the families and to see that just puts a smile on your face and I'm glad the, the weather's, it's not great, it's, it's not raining, it's kind of overcast, a wee bit cold but it's no bad so I'm glad the They've got a day for it. Hopefully it'll be a good ceremony for them and fingers crossed. I'd like to welcome everyone to St Peter's Delbeth to commemorate the newly marked grave of John Herbert McLaughlin, Celtic's first chairman. The credit for this beautiful headstone goes to Stephen McCormick here from Ardrossan, who raised £1,000 online via his GoFundMe website. So we'd like to publicly thank Stephen and the McLaughlin family for making this happen. <laughs> it's fitting that on such an occasion we have the current and 15th Celtic chairman, Ian Bankier, present. So we'd like us all to give a big Celtic welcome on his first public engagement to True that we're back here in St Peter's Dalbeth, where it all started for the Celtic Grave Society, and indeed where over 25 of our ex-players and founding fathers lie at rest. Along with our first chairman, we have Mick Barr, who played in the very first game and also served in the same board as John McLaughlin, but he just over right, just right over there. We have the first president, John Glass, in Dalbeth, just back there, and first secretary, John O'Hara, just over there. And John McLaughlin was much more than just our first chairman. He even played the organ for the Rangers Glee Club. <laughs> now, 
Rangers have been getting a bad press recently, but that has to be said. <laughs> in the 1880s, they employed organists regardless of nationality, colour or creed, so credit where credit's due. When Celtic were founded, John McLaughlin was only 24, but he served 10 years on the first Celtic committee and a further 12 as chairman. As well as serving Celtic, he also was the first secretary of the Scottish Football League and the president of the SFA. We won't hold that against him. <laughs> when he died, well before his time, aged only 46, he'd spent almost half his life with Celtic and almost all his adult years with Celtic. He was the greatest legislator of his time and in the birth of Celtic FC, professionalism and in the introduction of the Scottish Football League, the three most progressive and far-reaching developments in the early history of the Scottish game, John McLaughlin was central to all three. What a legacy to leave. Now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce today's speakers, Celtic Chairman Ian Bankier, Lisbon Lyon and Celtic Grave Society patron Jim Craig, to represent the family, Aidan McLaughlin, and also Stephen McCormick to close with a few words before we invite also the the Monsignor Peter Smith has had to be replaced at the last minute. We've got Canon Robert Hill from St Patrick's Anderson. We'll lay some flowers on the grave and then have the opportunity to have some pictures taken before, as I say, Stephen closes today's events with some words of thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Celtic Chairman Ian Bankier. Thank you very much, Brendan. Football today is an incredibly short-term business. Two or three games over the space of a few short days can change everything. Not least of all, personal careers and fortunes. Within such a brutal and fiery cauldron, it's inspiring to encounter the Celtic Grave Society. A society that truly takes the long view. A society that looks back to its roots and to the people who created and shaped the club that we all today cherish. For it's only when you take the long view that everything falls into the correct perspective. And when you look back, you learn the value of the things that you enjoy today. History teaches us everything. As the current and 15th chairman of the club, I'm delighted and honoured to be invited on this occasion to recognise my exact predecessor, John H. McLaughlin. There are people here who are much more qualified than I am to speak about the man. But let me say we are bound to have been kindred spirits in as much as many of the short-term pressures that visit the office of the chairman today would have visited him in the same way. Thank you very much. Mr Chairman, well, uh, Canon Hill, uh, ladies and gentlemen, my horoscope yesterday said that I would get a surprise over the weekend and I was really hoping it would be a lottery one. But in actual fact, it was Brendan turning, Brendan Sweeney telling me as I turned that corner there, would I speak this morning? 
so it is literally <laughs> off the cuff, as I'm sure you'll appreciate. Um, this, it must have been a difficult job that John McLaughlin had back then. Celtic started, you know, as we all know, 1887, 1888, run by a committee in those days. A committee of 15, 16 men at times. Now, any of you who have served in a committee of any sort, and I'm sure you all have at some time or another, would know the difficulty of that because you've got views of 16 different people to take into account. You're picking the team that plays for the next game. You would have committee men who were close to certain players and not close to other players. It really was a very, very difficult task for them. And it's a, a tribute to the character of John McLaughlin that he was able to help pull all that together and go for a structure which evolved very well during the 1890s, culminating in the, the board uh, in 1887, the first Celtic board being uh, set up at, at that time there. Uh, as Brendan Sweeney, he was responsible, as Brendan Sweeney mentioned there, he was responsible for some of the, the very big changes in football. The, the, the biggest of the lot, probably, the establishment of the Scottish League 1890, uh, 91, and also professionalism 1893. Although I've always been fascinated at that time as to the money side, because I'm a bit of a cynic at heart, as you probably don't realise. Why would players in a Hibs team that won the cup come to Celtic? Why would Dan Doyle come from professional Everton up to Celtic? Did they provide flowers for their wives? I mean, <laughs> could money have been involved at that time when Scottish football was nominally amateur? But we will never know the, the truth to all that. But apart from that, I mean, obviously he did a remarkable job working his way up through the ranks as secretary and then treasurer and then vice chairman up to chairman and, um, and also tragically had a very short uh, life as well uh, dying at only 46 years of age we have quite a number of the McLaughlin family here today and uh, i must mention my wife elizabeth here uh, because on the way up uh, she mentioned every single one of you <laughs> also told me what ages you all were together as well so i was really really impressed so we thank the McLaughlin family for providing Celtic uh, with this man and hope that uh, you have a very uh, day to remember today. Thank you very much. Dave. I'd like to invite Aidan to on behalf of the family. Thanks, Brendan. I will be brief since my immediate predecessor seems to suffer from constipation of thought and diarrhea of speech. Me? You'd be pleased to know I'm not referring to either Jim or you <laughs> Those are the words of J.H. McLaughlin after a Scottish League dinner in the 1890s. We've never been able to find out who spoke before him. I did, I did ask Hugh Evans because he was surely there. But... <laughs> uh, I'll refer to him as J.H. for the rest of this little talk, uh, but bearing in mind his words, I will be brief given the weather and he's probably watching us. He's known as J.H. rather than John Herbert because John Herbert was a mouthful and he wasn't known as John because it seemed that everyone other than Brother Walford involved in the establishment of Celtic had the first name John. John Glass, John O'Hara, John Conway. Uh, he was born in Glasgow in April 1863, I hope that's what it says there, uh, to Jack McLaughlin and uh, Maggie McCarran. Jack came over from Donegal in the 1840s, uh, but he didn't hang around in Glasgow too long. He and his wife went down south when he was a teacher, so he left J.H. to be brought up by his maternal grandparents, the McCarrans and he lived at 381 Duke Street. Uh, he was educated at St Mungo's Academy and then uh, the Jesuit College at Stonyhurst in Lancashire. Uh, he never actually knew his brothers and sisters until he was grown up. 
one of them was even more illustrious than him, Basil McLaughlin, who apparently was a lion tamer. Uh, and they're still doing some research on him. Uh, after school, he trained as a law clerk, uh, but then uh, became chief cashier at James Tullis, a leather company in the East End of Glasgow. How he met his wife, Elizabeth Shannon, we do not know, but he was clearly a man of action. They were married in August 1882, and his first son, my grandfather, was born some three months later. <laughs> some wag was heard to say that they might as well have hung around after the wedding for the christening. <laughs> in fact, it was only in 1948 that my grandfather found out he was a year older than he actually was. <laughs> uh, living in Duke Street, he was an influential member of St Mary's Parish, one of the St Mary's men, and he played the organ at 12 o'clock mass every Sunday. As a sign of his single-mindedness, even when he moved to Hamilton in the mid-1890s, every Sunday he still played the organ at St Mary's. He walked seven miles from Hamilton to Canvas Lang and caught the tram to Glasgow, played at Mass, went for lunch with a crony, went back to play the organ at Benediction, and then got the tram back and walked home the seven miles to Hamilton in the evening. Obviously, the parish life brought him into contact with kindred spirits and uh, John Glass, John O'Hara, and the Celtic Social Club was formed. Uh, I won't touch on the founding of the club, I think that's very well known by most people here. And he covered a variety of roles in the early days of the club. Uh, as he once told Dan Doyle, Dan hadn't played too well, and J.H. ventured to suggest that he had done just about everything at Celtic except actually play. But having seen Dan's performance that day, he thought he might as well try that as well. <laughs> as Jim said, I'm not quite sure what happened in those days, but he was the gatekeeper in the early matches who actually took the takings. And then actually, uh, he's recorded somewhere saying, I then paid the players, but as they were amateurs, we're not sure about that. <laughs> but as has already been said, he was key in, in two things, Scottish League and professionalism. He realised that if the fans didn't know what you were, who you were playing and when, they wouldn't keep coming. So the league was essential to that, matches were haphazard in those days. And he also realised that if they didn't know who was going to be playing for them, then that was difficult as well. And the advent of professionalism obviously came uh, in 1893. He said you might as well try to stop Niagara with a chair as stop the tide of professionalism. Uh, it wasn't universally welcomed by all the fans, so it must be gratifying for the current board to know that their illustrious predecessors uh, weren't uh, as popular all the time either. <laughs> but he and John, uh, Joseph Shaughnessy were quite clear, if you wanted to be charitable, you had to be sure you were going to raise the money to actually do that. Uh, so it's maybe shades of a, a, another chairman who came along almost 100 years later. Uh, Jim's already touched on the fact that he not only played the piano, but he sang at the Rangers Glee Clubs. It's not known what tunes he played or indeed sung. Very tame compared with today, I would imagine, but probably still strong enough to get him into trouble with the Scottish Government. He also accompanied uh, Harry Lauder and Count John McCormick at the Hamilton Miners Welfare Club in the 1890s. Uh, we've touched on his achievements in terms of the Scottish League and the SFA. Uh, amongst his other achievements, he successfully proposed a second division. He oversaw the first defeat of the Football League by the Scottish League in 1897 and was given a special gold badge to commemorate the event. My grandfather used to wear it on his watch chain, but we don't know what's happened to it since. We need to ask Auntie May, his granddaughter. He unsuccessfully proposed neutral linesmen. That would come later, although in the minds of a lot of Celtic fans, it has yet to come. <laughs> uh, and one year, rather than use his casting vote, as was the norm, to decide who would be promoted, he thought that was wrong, and he invited the two clubs, Clyde and Partick, to draw lots to see who would actually be promoted from the second division to the first division, and that set a piece of for later on. Uh, most controversially, and uh, probably shouldn't raise this here, but I will, he supported the British during the Boer War. Again, that was not exactly popular with the Irish contingent of the Celtic support. They supported the Boers because they saw that akin to uh, the Irish struggle against the British. They wanted J.H. removed and he even threatened to set up a rival club. 
I suspect Mr Bankier's immediate predecessor will know exactly how J.H. must have felt. <laughs> but his view is based uh, on the fact that he felt the Boers were every bit as, bit as bad as the British, and perhaps he was uh, later proved to be correct in that. I think Pat Woods, who's here today, correctly said this was probably the first known instance uh, of South African politics and sport coming into conflict. Uh, in terms of family life, he had six children, the eldest of which was my grandfather, who was a very keen sportsman. Uh, cricket and bowls, in fact, were his uh, favourite sports, which he could actually play, and his house in Hamilton had a bowling green right in front of it, which he used to frequent. I've actually still brought along today two of the bowls that he actually used at the time, and anybody's welcome to have a look at them afterwards. He died young and his wife was left with a large family to bring up. I'm not saying that explains the unmarked grave, but it probably had something to do with it in the time. Uh, the family lost to shares, presumably to the Whites and the Kellys. We're not actually quite sure on that. Um, and we also never found a gold uh, and diamond ring that he was given by the Scottish League to mark the 10th anniversary of his uh, presidency. Uh, I hope that gives you a flavour of the man. There's six grandchildren still alive, dozens of great-grandchildren, and I think we're two generations below that now and still growing and some of them still manage to make it to Celtic Park and other grounds uh, as often as we can. <coughs> but we're immensely proud of his role within the family. I think we speak on behalf of everybody from the Walkins here. And it was particularly pleasing in 1995 when Fergus McCann allowed the family to once again be able to own shares in the club, which we were very pleased to do. Uh, big thanks to Brendan, to Steph particularly for his work on this project, for uh, Brendan and the Graves Society, uh, most Celtic fans sing if you know the history. I think the Graves Society actually brings that to life nowadays in more ways than one. Uh, very big thanks to Cannon Hill and also to Mr Bankier for taking the trouble and the time to come along and speak today. So thank you all very much indeed. Many years ago our brother was laid to rest in the peace of Christ in this place. Today we gather to dedicate and to ask God's blessing on the stone that commemorates his death. In scripture we read our true home is in heaven and Jesus Christ whose return we long for will come from heaven to save us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus by your own three days in the grave you made holy the graves of all who believe in you. And so you made our graves a sign of hope that promises resurrection, even as it claims our mortal bodies. Our brother was laid here many years ago to sleep in the hope of the resurrection, that you are the resurrection and the life, and that he will see you face to face, and in your light will see light and know the splendour of God, for you live and reign forever and ever. Amen. Father, we ask you to bless these, this stone which we place in memory of John H. McLaughlin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, and we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Eternal rest grant unto him, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon him. May his soul and the soul of all the faithful depart. For the mercy of God rest in peace. 
And may the peace of God, which is beyond all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And we ask God to bless this stone and all who are gathered here in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks once again for everyone's support, especially the fact that you come out from your family. Just before I invite Steph to say a few words of thanks, the Celtic Grave Society will hold an event in Coat Bridge to mark the grave of Michael Dolan, the last member of the first ever Celtic team, to lie in an unmarked grave. It's on Sunday, 18th of March, St Patrick's weekend, just before the Cup final in the Celtic Heartland of Coat Bridge. We hope to see some of you there. We'd like to invite everyone as well the Celtic Club to raise a toast to John McLaughlin before the game. But first, please welcome Dave McCormick. Thank you. First of all, thank everyone for taking the opportunity to attend today's service. Today's event, in a way, marks the end of a personal journey for myself. For those who don't know, this started in the middle of November last year, when I was contacted by a friend who, after researching a family tree, found that she was related to John Herbert McLaughlin, her mother's side of the family. Knowing that I'm a big Celtic fan, she thought I would be interested in her recent find. I decided to carry out some research into John's life and his time with Celtic. Part of this research brought to my attention that John's resting place had recently been found by the Celtic Grave Society, unfortunately way unmarked. After seeking permission, I set up a website with the principal aim of raising funds for a lasting memorial for John Herbert McLaughlin, who was one of the founding fathers of Celtic Football Club. I'd like to thank everybody who made a donation, and I'm delighted that some of you are present today. Donations not only came from the UK, Ireland and Europe, but literally the four corners of the world, including America, Canada, South Africa and Australia. I was humbled by the generosity of the Celtic family worldwide in helping me reach the target so quickly. All too often we read in newspapers and watching television stories about how social networking sites be hatred and bigotry. In today's society it was refreshing that in this instance we have been used to unite Celtic supporters worldwide and produce such a positive outcome. Thank you.
now going to arrange some photographs. So, so that's another successful event completed. Excellent turnout for the family. It was just masses of them. Uh, good to hear our uh, current chairman here as well, talking about his predecessor. Uh, not really heard much from him recently, so it's good to see him out and about and in among his Celtic fans. Uh, I didn't know that about the Scottish League actually, that was interesting. I didn't realise that uh, John McLaughlin played such a big part in that as well. So Just goes to show what a, a massive, massive importance he was to not just Celtic but Scottish football as a whole. And uh, next up, it sounds like we're uh, going to Coat Bridge in March, so that should be good to get the, the last of the the very first team in Mark Graves and we milestone there for the, the Celtic Graves Society when they really deserve to meet. So now I get to head off and go watch us play Cali Thistle again. Hey, well. Stand together 